All right. Good to see everybody. God bless you guys. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 10? Last week we uh, entered into chapter 10, and as we did, we said that chapters 10 through 14 form uh, a kind of a break or a parenthesis uh, from the narrative. Uh, these chapters are placed here by the Holy Spirit to, you know, fill in some blanks and to amplify some of the things that have already taken place uh, during the first three and a half years of the seven. In that regard, these chapters are a flashback because where we are, we have already crossed over into the second half of the tribulation period. And so now we've stopped and we're kind of looking at a flashback back to some of the things that went on um, that were not covered in the preceding chapters. So just so you know where we are with this. So uh, let's pick it up in verse 5 of chapter 10. John says, Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and all the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. Now, as I said last time, I don't believe this mighty angel is Jesus. Many good commentators do. I don't. And I gave you reasons why I don't believe it's Jesus. But I don't believe it's Jesus, not because he swears by God Almighty. Some people have said, well, this proves can't be Jesus. Because he, because he swears by God. Okay, so we know it's not Jesus. Well, I don't believe it's Jesus, but not for that reason. Because God, when he swears, can swear by nobody greater than himself. So he will swear by himself. Jeremiah 44, 26. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. All Judah, who dwell in the land of Egypt, behold, I have sworn by my great name, says the Lord. And he goes on, right? In uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, the writer says that God made a promise to Abraham. But because he could not swear by anyone greater than himself, he swore by himself. So that's, so, you know, that's not uncommon to see in Scripture that God will swear by himself because you usually take an oath, you swear by somebody greater than you. There's nobody greater than God. So he's got to swear by himself, okay? Uh, but... Again, verse 5, the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and, and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the heaven and the things that are in it, earth and the things that are in it, all the things in the sea and so on, that there should be, listen, delay no longer. Now, first of all, let me just point out, um, in a solemn act, a solemn act, the angel whom John saw standing, as we saw in verse 2, one foot on the sea, one foot on the land, big guy, okay? Um, although somebody said he did the same thing. Uh, he went to the beach and put his one foot in the water, one foot in the land. I Don't be a Weisenheimer. This is something obviously much greater than that, okay? It's a giant angel, mighty angel, uh, and so on, but... We saw him with his one foot on the sea, one foot on the, on the land. And now he lifts up his hand, uh, his hand. Some of the translations say his right hand, which would have made uh, the, the scroll be in his left hand, obviously. But um, he's standing there, and he raises his right hand to heaven. Now he's going to take, and that's the, obviously the, um, the standard gesture for, gesture for taking a vow, right? And so this angel, uh, he swears, he takes a solemn oath before God Almighty that he will not delay in his mission. The time has come. We'll talk about that more in a second. But the angel is actually swearing before God, swearing in God's presence that he is going to carry out the mission God gave to him without delay. Without delay. As we have been saying, God has been delaying his full and final judgment so that lost sinners have had a chance to repent. God, you know, what is 2 Peter 
3, uh, verses 1 to 9, uh, God is not slack concerning his promises. Some count slackness his promise to bring judgment, uh, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So even in judgment, God is demonstrating mercy, as we have talked about, right? He doesn't want to see anyone go to hell. God gets no pleasure uh, out of the death of the unrighteous. You can check out Ezekiel 18, all right, where he pleads with Israel to turn from their wicked ways. Why will you die? I get no pleasure out of the death of the wicked. Turn to me so I can, I can give you life and I'll ultimately eternal life. But God has been delaying the final judgments of this series. Seals, trumpets, bowls. And he has been kind of delaying these final judgments to give people a chance to repent. Now, however, as we have said, all who would receive Jesus and be saved, well, they have done so, which means there isn't any more reason to delay um, future judgments upon the earth any longer. Uh, I really believe at this point now in the tribulation period, everybody who is going to be saved has gotten saved. Therefore, there's no point in delaying judgments, bringing a judgment, backing away, giving people a chance to think about it, hopefully uh, repent of their sins, get saved. Everyone who's going to get saved now has been saved. And the only unbelievers left are the earth dwellers militant atheists and uh, they're never going to soften their heart their heart is too high hard they've passed the point of no return spiritually speaking they've committed blasphemy against the holy spirit there is no point for god to delay his judgments any longer so now guys he's going to accelerate his judgments uh, from here until the end of the tribulation period when jesus returns and will complete the judgment of god against all the unbelievers left on the earth and then establish his kingdom, where we will all reign as his people for a thousand years. So the specific content of the angel's oath was that, and I'm quoting now, there will be delay no longer. Now this in a way answers the question of the martyrs in chapter 6. Turn back to chapter 6 just quickly. Let me read to you verses 9 and 10. So when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, Listen, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So these are martyrs, people that have been martyred for their faith, and they're in heaven now, and they're asking the Lord, How long before... You bring your judgments upon those who took our lives on the earth. And what did Jesus say? Just hang in there. God's got a, a time for everything. Be patient, right? The Bible says for everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. And uh, there is a time to uh, live. There's a time to die. And uh, so God is now getting ready to avenge these martyrs uh, by killing those who took their lives. And so verse 10, Revelation 10, verse 7, I should say. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. So it's a little, this is a little uh, ambiguous, uh, and let, let's break it down, okay? So we understand what's being said here. First of all, the phrase, but in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, guys, indicates that the judgment of the seventh trumpet is about to take place. And, and that it's not a single event, but covers days, plural. All right. This period includes the seven bold judgments. Chapter 16 uh, records those. Uh, which appear to require some days to fulfill, um, possibly several weeks. We don't know. But as we will see when we get to chapter 16, these judgments are poured out in pretty rapid-fire succession. Again, God's not delaying because there's nobody left that's going to get saved. 
So one after another, these judgments are poured out. We'll see that in chapter 16. Uh, in rapid fire succession on the earth, and those who dwell upon the earth, the earth dwellers, um, who have been working with the Antichrist, martyring uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, I'm sure it is going to wind up being millions of people for their faith. And so God is going to really now judge these earth dwellers, and um, they will be a culmination of the final judgments of the great uh, of the great tribulation period. This you have the tribulation. Sometimes we just call the whole seven years the tribulation period. Technically not uh, accurate. I do it though. It's just too hard to every time divide it up and explain everything. But you understand this. It's it's probably a, a more uh, theologically correct to refer to it as the 70th week of Daniel, a seven-year period that's broken into two parts: tribulation and great tribulation, like a woman in labor. Uh, first part of the labor, uh, the pains are less frequent, less intense. The closer you get to the birth of the child, the pains get more intense, more frequent until the child is born. That's what Jesus likened it to in Matthew chapter 24. Um, but the time of God's patience is now ended. The time for the final acts of his, of his divine judgment are at hand. Even as Peter warned. Why don't you turn to 2 Peter real quick. I'm going to read it to you out of the NLT 2nd edition. The time for God's final acts of judgment are at hand now. 2 Peter 3 verse 9. The Lord isn't really being slow about His promise to bring a worldwide judgment as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed in hell, but wants everyone to repent and, of course, go to heaven. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Now you can go back. And uh, listen to our study in 2 Peter 3, verses 9 and 10, um, because we went into a lot of this stuff, and it's a little involved. So, I just, But I want to just read to you uh, this tonight as far as, you know, some people think because nothing has happened yet, nothing is ever going to happen. And uh, Peter makes it, uh, you know, a, a point to say, look, um, God judged the whole world once in the days of Noah. He's going to judge the whole world again uh, in the future. And, uh, you know, but, but you have people that say, well, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they have from the beginning of time. Uh, you know, it's, it's a fallacy uh, to think that because judgment hasn't come yet, it's never going to come. And, uh, and Peter makes it a point to bring up Noah and so on. But um, one author comments concerning this. He said, and I quote, a question that has troubled God's people throughout history is why God has allowed evil in the world. You ever wrestle with that? <laughs> you, you aren't alone, okay? He said, the wicked often appear to prosper. Sin seemingly runs wild and unchecked. Why, people ask, does God not stop all the carnage, corruption, and chaos in the world? Why does he allow his children to suffer? When will divine justice prevail and the righteous be delivered and the wicked punished? Yeah, well, we've all wrestled with that, okay? Uh, this was something uh, that the psalmist wrestled with. Turn to Psalm 73. I think it's worth looking at. Psalm 73, we won't read the whole thing, but I want to give you a flavor of what the psalmist was wrestling with. Psalm 73, verse 1. Now, see if you can identify with the psalmist, okay? Who was a believer, of course. Truly God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping, my faith. was I was slipping in my faith, and I was almost gone. 
For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. They seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people. Now, that's obviously not true, right? But you know how we tend to, uh, we tend to make these, these statements that are like, you know, all-encompassing, right? We, we do this when we have a fight with our spouse. Uh, you know, you never help me around the house, you know. You, you never say anything kind about me. Well, that's not true. We could all improve, uh, okay. But the, when we're feeling sorry for ourselves, we tend to fall into hyperbole and exaggerate a situation. And the psalmist is doing that. I mean, let's be honest. Um, the wicked, especially the wealthy wicked, um, they suffer th uh, things like a lot of people do. Uh, problem is they've got money oftentimes to get the best doctors, the best care, and uh, they often recover when poor people are left to suffer, okay? But anyways, I, I understand where he's coming from, okay? Uh, verse 5, they don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. Verse 12, look at these wicked people enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. Did I, did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? Maybe you've ever heard somebody say, it doesn't pay to serve God. Well, that depends what kind of pay you're looking for. I mean, the retirement program is phenomenal. Um, but, you know, I mean, he's questioning whether it's worth it to serve God. Because look, the wealthy, the wicked, they're just having a good old time. Um, me, I go through adversity, and he's talking about serving God, right? I mean, try to live for God, and I get attacked, and I'm persecuted, and uh, my health isn't the best, and uh, blah, blah, blah. He's just going on and on and on. And, and what he's implying is, uh, does it really pay to serve God? Well, that's something every person has to determine for themselves, right? Um, verse 14, I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. Verse 16. So I tried to understand why the wicked prosper, but what a difficult task it is. Then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. You know what? I'll paraphrase. Then I went to church. You know, again, I'm paraphrasing. And I sang songs to the Lord. And it got me back all with it. You know what I'm saying? Uh, just being in God's presence. Uh, hearing the word of God taught. Um, I know these things. This, I'm sure this psalm was, I know this stuff. But I was feeling sorry for myself, you know? And, uh, but, you know, the idea is that, um, you know, that's why it's so important to come to church. Be around God's people. And it's a way of, refocusing ourselves we get we get our eyes off of god and onto the world and we start feeling sorry for ourselves because this guy's got more i've got and i'm struggling and they're always prospering and i'm a believer and they're not and they're living for the world and i'm living for the lord and my life is so much harder i wouldn't take that to the bank uh, yeah god's people go through hard times uh, is their life so much easier than our life no because we have an inner strength that comes from the Holy Spirit and a promise and peace. Uh, these are things that money can't buy. And sometimes we take for granted, but uh, we shouldn't. And so, you know, I, my, my, I almost lost my faith. I almost, my foot almost slipped off the path until I went into the house of God. And then I was reminded what their end is going to be, right? Verse 18, truly. You put them on a slippery path and send them sliding over the cliff to destruct over the cliff to destruction. Uh, in an instant, they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. And I think ultimately judgment is in view there. All right. So the the, the wicked, their their day is coming, and their day is coming, and all their money in the world is not going to buy them. Um, pay God. God can't be bribed, obviously. So all the money in the world is not going to keep them from going to hell. 
this is something that we need to rejoice in that we are saved all the time. But folks, the time has finally come for God to bring his final judgments upon the wicked in full force. The time anticipated in the disciples' question, as well, the questions, really, two of them, as recorded in Matthew 24, verse 3, and Acts chapter 1, verse 6, the time has come. The question from Matthew 24, verse 3, you remember, they said to the Lord, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the signs of your coming and the end of the age? Lord, when are you going to judge the wicked and bring the kingdom? And they again asked that question in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, before the Lord ascended back to his father. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The time had not come. But now verse 7, in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished. Uh, one author rightly points out concerning what a biblical mystery is. He said, and I quote, In biblical vocabulary, a mystery isn't something no one knows. A mystery is something no one could know unless it was revealed by God to him or her. If you could know it by intuition or personal investigation, it isn't a divine mystery because divine mysteries must be revealed by God, end quote. The Greek word is mysterion. And that's what the word mystery comes into the English language as a transliteration of that Greek word mysterion, mystery, okay? Now, we talk about a mystery, we talk about things that can't be known, okay, or aren't known. A biblical mystery is something that was hidden in the past, but now God has revealed. That's a very important point. What the, uh, what the uh, writer is saying here is that the, the time for the sounding of the seventh angel has come, and this would signify now God revealing his mystery, which he has been talking about uh, for centuries. The time has come for God to now fulfill, reveal fully, not that he hasn't revealed any of it, but reveal fully what this mystery is. We've got to first determine what it is this this mystery is right um but you know we know in the bible that there are numerous mysteries you can take a concordance and 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 chase down the word mystery all right and it's attached to numerous uh things uh in the old testament mysteries were things that were uh were were hidden and the, the truth of it um god mentioned the mystery but never revealed what it actually was. And so in the Old, hidden in the Old Testament um, are mysteries that the New Testament reveals, and they include just a few of them. The mystery of Israel's blindness, Romans 11, verse 25. The mystery of the rapture, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. The mystery form of the kingdom, Matthew 13. That's a good one to wrestle with, right? And there's others, okay? Now listen, I believe that the mystery of God which the angel spoke of is the same mystery that Paul talked about in Ephesians chapter 1. Why don't you turn there? Those other mysteries we just mentioned uh, were uh, limited uh, in scope. This one is like all-encompassing, okay? Uh, we would say this is a mystery of mysteries because it involves so much, okay? But again, I believe this mystery of God is the same, the angel spoke of is the same mystery that Paul talked about in Ephesians 1. Let's look at verse 9. And again, I'll read it to you out of the NLT 2nd edition. God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. And this is the plan. At the right hand, excuse me, at the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. This is the consummation, guys, of God's plan in bringing his glorious kingdom in Christ to fulfillment. Um, this consummation, when I say consummation, this is the tying up of all the loose ends. This is the, 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 the 
culmination, the consummation of many things God had said. Uh, this mystery is a pretty large thing, okay? But it involves gathering all who would receive Jesus as Savior and King throughout all of human history, gathering them together into God's glorious kingdom and all that goes with that, all right? All that goes with that. But it also includes the judgment. When I say it's going to tie up all the loose ends, yeah, all the good loose ends and all the bad loose ends. The good loose ends, of course, will be all of us, where we get our inheritance. And we move into the kingdom. And we never are separated from the Lord ever again. That's a glorious end, right? But then you have others who have um, rebelled against God all their life, refused to accept Christ. Well, God's going to tie up those loose ends, and he gathers all the rebels. It's the judgment of all the rebels that have ever lived. Now, not just mankind, but demons and fallen angels, all right? And he gathers up all of these and casts them into the lake of fire or hell for eternity, for eternity. Um, when you think about it, when everything is said and done, there's only going to be two realities left. God's kingdom and hell and hell's fire, the lake of fire. You're only going to have the obedient and the rebels. The obedient bowed the knee to Christ during their life. The rebels, they had to do it when they stood before Jesus after they had died and were resurrected. Too late. But there's coming a day when every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But if you wait till after you die to stand before Jesus and, and acknowledge his lordship, it's too late, right? But um, this doesn't all happen at once, okay? Uh, when Jesus comes back at his second coming, he's going to establish his kingdom. And everyone who has ever believed in Christ is going to be resurrected and be a part of that kingdom, right? Of course, after that, we go into the eternal state. We'll talk about that uh, at the end of our study in Revelation. Uh, but all unbelievers continue to reside in Hades, which is in the center of the earth, until after the millennial kingdom. And Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15, talks about how they will be resurrected to stand before Jesus Christ at the great white throne judgment. They're all going to hell. Uh, this is not their day in court where they can plead their case and hopefully win and, and, and get into heaven. They're already guilty. The Lord has already declared them guilty. This is just to determine their degree of punishment in hell. And when the last person is cast into hell, all things are complete now. And what happens is then God destroys this creation and creates a new creation. Something that's never, will never have been corrupted by sin and never will be corrupted by sin. This creation, right, Genesis chapter 1, um, God said it was very good, right? After every day of creation, God saw it was good. God saw it was good. God saw it was good. At the end of the six days, God kind of stepped back from the canvas of his creation, looked and said, it was all good. That ended chapter 1 pretty much. Creation was good. The devil took the form of a serpent, tempted Eve, and then she gave to Adam the forbidden fruit, and God's perfect creation was corrupted. And so God is working within our choice. This is not the world he wanted for us, right? Uh, he didn't want a world of injustice and evil and murder and all these things. This is the world we have chosen. And so God is using our own choices, our free will, to, to draw out from this fallen creation of people that want to live in a new creation. And, 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 and everybody who says, I want, I want that, Lord, they're going to be a part of that new creation someday. A creation that will have never been corrupted by sin. In fact, it's going to be a creation, I'm convinced, unlike anything we're used to. And this is a four-dimensional creation that we're living in, right? Uh, what would it be like to live in a million dimensions? I mean, think about that. I mean, if life is so much better in three dimensions than in two dimensions, what would a million dimensions be like to live in? We don't have any capacity to understand what the eternal state is all about. Millennial kingdom, that's still part of time. 
It's a thousand years. There's no time in eternity, right? So the millennial kingdom is God tying up loose ends. He gave the earth to mankind, man blew it. Uh, a man blew it, Adam, so a man had to redeem the, the, the world back to God. So Jesus entered into the human race and became that kinsman redeemer. Um, but it won't be completely, completely brand new until the new creation. And uh, we're looking forward to that. But... Uh, Again, guys, the mystery spoken of uh, by the angel in verse 7 refers to all the unknown details that are revealed from this point, this point to the end of Revelation when the new heavens and the new earth are created. Now, guys, listen, God had preached, God had preached this mystery uh, to various Old Testament saints. That's not to say they understood what God was preaching to them, because he only gave them so much information, okay? Um, but he revealed uh, this mystery to the prophets, Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, Amos, Zechariah, just to name a few. They, they all wrote of end times events. Now, just because they wrote about end times events didn't mean they understood what they were writing. Remember Daniel? I mean, he was given incredible end times events to write down. He said, well, God, can you just give me a little more? I, no, no, Daniel's not for you. Write it down, close the book, go your way. Uh, these things are for many days in the future. So he's a little frustrated, I can imagine. You know, it's like, you know, well, can, can you give me just a little more, Lord? It's like parables. I wish if I had been one of the disciples when Jesus was rattling off these kingdom parables, I would have said, well, Lord, can you just give us just a little more? You know, he said to the guys, do you understand all this? Yea, Lord, we understand. What? You guys never understood anything. Couldn't you, you couldn't ask a little question for the rest of us? Well, Lord, can you just give us a little more? Can I think Jesus would have maybe filled in a few blanks? Because parables, the more you study them, the more they can drive you nuts. When I did my study in Matthew, I'm, I'm getting off the track, forgive me. When I did my study in Matthew 13 on the parables, you know, you read them, you think you got it. Okay, this is not that hard. Okay, but... The more you meditate on the parables, the more things don't fit anymore. I literally, I'm not, I'm not just saying that, I literally lost sleep one Saturday night knowing the next morning I had to preach on parables. And I wasn't sure about this one. I kept crying out to the Lord. I think he helped me. I think he helped me. But um, it's they're rough. So there are times that I'd like to ask the Lord, can you just give us a little more? Okay. Um, and I'm sure these prophets felt that way as God revealed these end times events, but they didn't understand. Well, sure, God says to Daniel, write it down, go your way. In the end times, knowledge will be increased and men will go to and fro about the face of the whole earth. They're going to understand, Daniel, but not you. you, you you're not going to get it, okay? Um, but guys, much of the detail um, that was hidden in the Old Testament with these mysteries until the New Testament came uh, into being, um, <clears throat> again, the New Testament enlightened us to a lot of things that God had said to the prophets. They didn't get it, Old Testament prophets. You know, Matthew 24, 25, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, through chapter 2, verse 12, just to name a few spots where God's filled in some blanks, where he was revealing a mystery. Declared it in the Old Testament, but it wasn't revealed yet. He was going to reveal it because that's what a mystery, divine mystery is. Something that was hidden but now has been revealed. And it's usually the Old Testament hidden, New Testament is being revealed. Um, and this applies, I think, more particularly to the uh, to um, in, in what we have been learning in Revelation, how God is filling in the blanks as we are going, especially with these, uh, these five chapters of parenthesis, right? But Look, Warren Worsby said, and I quote, The mystery of God has to do with the age-old problem of evil in the world. Why is there both moral and natural evil in the world? Why doesn't God do something about it? Of course, the Christian knows that God did do something about it, quote-unquote, at Calvary. When Jesus Christ was made sin and experienced divine wrath for a sinful world. We also know that God is permitting evil to increase until the world is ripe for judgment. 
Since God has already paid the price for sin, he is free to delay his judgment and he cannot be accused of injustice or unconcern. You know, God's got it all worked out. God knows what he's doing. We think, Lord, you know, if I was God, I wouldn't have done it this way. Well, yeah, okay, but you're not God, okay? Uh, right, We would because we don't have God's wisdom, but we don't also have God's foresight. I mean, you know, I mean, we only see what is near, not that which is afar off. That's what Peter said. That's our problem. God sees the big picture. So God's often working in my life today for something maybe five years down the road. I have no idea what he's up to. It doesn't make any sense at all. If I was calling the shots, I wouldn't do it this way. Of course I wouldn't because I don't have the big picture. God knows what he's doing. And we have to just trust that, right? And, and especially when it comes to the events that are starting to unfold even as we speak. Why did God allow an election to be cheated? Now, that's where I'm coming from. I mean, you might have your own opinions. I believe that, I, I'm just going to say it, that a senile old man who spent most of the campaign in his basement, and when he had a rally, 12, 15 people showed up. And President Trump was, was gathering 50,000, 60,000 people at every place he stopped. Now, why would God allow an election so important to be stolen like that? I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me. But I'm not God. I'm sure it makes perfect sense to him. I trust him. Again, if I was God, I wouldn't have done it that way. <laughs> Thankfully, I'm not God. Okay? Because if I was God, there'd be a lot less people in the world. God is so, God is so gracious. God is so gracious in, in how he lets people sin, but all the while has his arms stretched out. You know, he doesn't blast people right away as soon as they, they, they do something evil. He, he continues to reach out to them in mercy. That's God. That's the, that's the heart of our God that doesn't want to see anyone perish in hell but wants all to come to repentance, right? Um, okay. Revelation 10, verse 8. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went, John said, to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it. And it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. Now, this language is reminiscent of several other Old Testament passages. Turn to Jeremiah 15. Jeremiah 15, 16. Well, maybe I'll have you just write these down, and after this, it's a, they're not that long, but okay. Uh, Jeremiah 15, 16. Your words were found, and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. This idea of eating God's word, right? Ezekiel 2, verses 8 through 10 but you, son of man, that's a title for Ezekiel, you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house, the northern kingdom of Israel is what's in view there. Open your mouth and eat, eat what I give you. And when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. Then he spread it before me, and there were writings on the inside and on the outside, and written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. What does woe stand for? Severe judgment. All right? So this book contains judgments that Ezekiel uh, calls lamentations, mournings, and woe. Remember what we said last week about the uh, large book, 
that we saw the scroll, I shouldn't say book, the large scroll we saw in Revelation 5, verse 2, that Jesus was in the Father's right hand. Jesus stepped up, took it, and begins to break the seals on it, right? Um, now we see a little book. But the Greek, the words that are used for, uh, I'm going to say book and booklet, uh, there were no books or booklets back then. There were no book bindings invented yet, but they were scrolls, right? This one is connected to the bigger scroll. What do I mean? Well, as we said last time, um, the Greek implies something that is smaller taken from the bigger. Again, we would say a book and then from that a booklet, okay? What is this little scroll? Well, I believe it's what Ezekiel talked about. Uh, it is the remaining judgments that are yet to come. Now, these are some of the worst, as we have been saying, of all the judgments that God is, is poured out upon the earth. These are some of the worst, okay? And uh, this is the remaining judgments. The, the most severe because, again, God's not showing any mercy. Uh, everyone who has accepted Christ has, has done so, who would have has accepted Jesus. What's left are the militant, uh, rabid, anti-God earth dwellers, okay? So, um, and that's why the angel takes the little book and says, I'm not going to delay any longer. I mean, there'll be no more delay. I solemnly promise God, I will fulfill these judgments quickly because there's no point in delaying, as we have just said, right? Ezekiel 3, verses 1 to 3, Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he caused me to eat this, that scroll. Uh, and he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly and, and fill your stomach with this, with this scroll that I give you. So I ate, and it was in my mouth like honey and sweetness. Yeah, well, what John says here in verse 10, he says, Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. Guys, God's word is both sweet and bitter. What do I mean? God's word is sweet when we dwell in the promises as his people. As we come to the word of God as God's people, we have been given many great and precious promises. The ultimate promise is, of course, yes, salvation, but we spend eternity in heaven. I mean, that's sweet. When you think about, I don't care how good your life is on the earth right now, nothing is going to compare to heaven, okay? And that is nothing but a, a sweet idea that just, it, it's just such a sweet thing for us. And we, and we express it through our praise and our worship because of what God has promised us. And it's just sweetness, right? Here's the problem, though. As we feed on God's word, and it's sweet, so many promises. As we really begin to digest all that God has said, it often makes us sick to our stomachs. We become sick to our stomachs as we realize what is coming upon the earth. The kingdom, that is sweet. We look forward to Jesus reigning over this. I am so sick and tired of man's rule. I am so tired of the corruption. Did you watch the G7 at all? The global G7 conference, right? And at one point they were all standing for a photo op socially distanced, standing erect. And I looked at every one of those leaders and I thought, this is one of the saddest displays I've ever seen. Because I know enough about each one of those leaders to know they are feckless leaders that don't know what they're doing. I thought to myself, Lord, if this is the best the world can do, come quickly, yes. Lord Jesus. Yes. I, I just, you know, and, and that just to me though, but... Before the kingdom comes, though, there's going to be severe judgments. Yeah, and it makes us sick to our stomach to think about that. It was, But guys, listen. It was only after Ezekiel... If you read the whole context of that passage, Ezekiel chapters 2 and 3. It was only after Ezekiel ate the scroll that was sweet to his mouth but bitter to his belly, that he was able to share boldly with those whom he had previously been afraid to share God's truth with. Okay? It was after he ate the scroll, sweet to his mouth, bitter in his belly, 
that he had the boldness to share with people that God told him to preach the truth to. He was scared. We get scared, don't we? Sometimes we get scared. Uh, sharing God's truth. What are they going to think of me? They're going to laugh at me. They're going to make fun. And they might even hit me. I mean, my son had his Bible ripped out of his doing some street evangelism years ago. Somebody walked by in front of a bar, walked out and took his Bible and ripped it in half. I said, was that your good Bible? Well, yeah. Take a paperback Bible. It was a leather-bound Bible. Take a paper Bible. Let him rip a paper Bible. Not your good Bible, leather Bible. But, you know, it happens, right? And we get nervous. Well, what, what, what are they going to think? What are they going to do to us, right? But it was the bitterness in Ezekiel's belly that motivated him to share God's truth with the lost and to speak boldly. This seems to be the same case with John. Again, verses 10 and 11. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and, and ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. Verse 11, and he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. And through the remaining revelation, guys, that God gave to John, he did indeed prophesy to many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. In fact, John continues to do so with each new generation that teaches this book, that teaches Revelation. Um, somebody said to me Sunday after church of a pastor that they used to go to his church. And um, one Sunday he started, and he started by berating the congregation. I don't know if it was good natured, maybe. He said, now... I'm always getting people coming to me and saying, Pastor, when are you going to teach the book of Revelation? I'm not going to teach Revelation. I don't know if he said nobody understands it, whatever else, you know. So don't ask me again to teach Revelation. What, how sad is that? Especially when God promises a special blessing to those who read, understand this book. I just think it's very sad when churches shy away from prophecy because they don't want to make people uncomfortable. Um, they want to make, you know, say things that are positive and upbeat. Judgment is typically not positive and upbeat unless it brings you to Christ, okay? Talk of coming judgment, if it humbles you, brings you to your knees in confession of your sin and receiving Christ, then it's very positive, okay? The end result is. Um, but... It's just sad to me that in these last days when we ought to be shouting these things from the rooftop, especially Revelation. You mean people in the world are open to the book of Revelation? They know something's coming. They can feel it. And here we are studying a book that they have maybe read but do not understand. And all we're doing is trying to take it verse by verse, unravel some of the... I'm not saying that every interpretation I have come up with is correct. I'll let you wrestle with that, right? But I know one thing, it's better to try to understand the mysteries of God and the Word of God, Revelation, than to not go near it altogether. One of the things I believe the book of Revelation and other prophetic passages do is they teach us what's coming. They teach us what's coming. Now, we know as Christians what's coming. But it reminds us that, sure, the kingdom, that's sweet to think about. But before we get to the kingdom, we got to pass through seven years of great tribulation, seven years of tribulation. And what that's going to mean to the people of this world if they don't receive Christ. Guys, let me just end by saying this. The greatest strength and boldness in telling others about Jesus, listen, is knowing the judgment that is coming upon this world and the terror that God is going to unleash upon 
rebellious fallen mankind. If we really have God's heart, we will want to see people, excuse me, we will not want to see people go through that judgment, not even our worst enemies. This becomes, I believe, the greatest motivation to share the gospel. It's when Ezekiel's stomach became bitter as he realized what was coming. Such horrific judgments, no man of God, no woman of God would want their worst enemy to go through these things. It motivated him to share God's truth. You know what I've prayed in the past? I have prayed many times. God, give me more boldness in sharing the gospel. I have come to change that prayer. Now I pray, God, give me more love for the lost. Because if I really love the lost, then it's going to overcome any fear I have. My love for them will supersede anything that is directed at me and my fears and my what are they going to think of me, right? Ezekiel, he knew. Well, we, now we know, of course, as we read Revelation. But again, guys, knowing the terror that God is going to unleash upon this world, this becomes the greatest motivation to share the gospel. I'll leave you with what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Sharing the gospel with the lost is rooted in the love of God. Pray that God will give you a heart of love for the lost. They're not our enemies, right? They've been taken captive by the devil to do his will. I don't care what they say about us, what they do to us. They have been taken captive by the devil. They're not my enemy. And so we need to ask God, give us more love for these people that it will result in me not being shy at all about sharing the gospel with them. God, give us a love for the lost. Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray, Lord, that you will continue to bless these studies in the book of Revelation. We thank you, Lord, for your, your many blessings, and thank you that you've opened our eyes. And I thank you for my pastor who, when I was a young believer, um, he taught me uh, the book of Revelation. Thank you for good, strong men and women of God that are not afraid to teach prophecy or especially the book of Revelation that we might learn about what's coming and and have such a, a burden for the lost that we would do anything to see them saved. So we thank you, Lord. We ask that you would continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.